0: Good afternoon, and uh, thank you uh, to Robert uh, and to Gary uh, for, uh, first of all to Robert for his kind introduction and welcome, and to Gary for the invitation to uh, participate in this event, uh, this conference. Uh, It's my first time to LTS, first time involved with the John Owen Centre, and uh, so I'm delighted to have this opportunity to meet Uh, many of you for the first time and to meet a few again and uh, I'm very grateful for this opportunity. Uh, You should all have received a handout so that uh, you've got a vague uh, notion of where we are as we progress and it may also allow me to um, modify uh, my uh, progress as we go so that um, we may not cover uh, everything but we'll see how our time allows all things to all men, the boundaries of Paul's pragmatism. It's a demanding uh, topic, as I discovered. Uh, You cannot simply go to a Pauline theology uh, and look up pragmatism in the uh, index, as I discovered, I tried. (laughs) 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 But uh, it raises uh, important questions, and I think we've already seen today that uh, there are issues to address. So, In some respects, one of the first things we face is the question of Well, what do we mean uh, by the topic? Um, Was Paul pragmatic? I'll have to remember to change both of these. Was Paul pragmatic? What definition shall we use? Uh, Does this word have a positive or negative connotation? The word pragma, uh, the Greek word, simply means a thing. Pragmata things. Uh, So That doesn't really help us. It comes from uh, a verb meaning to do, uh, and so perhaps uh, that helps us to get a sense of uh, action uh, being at the root of this word. As I mentioned earlier on, I looked up the Oxford English Dictionary uh, to get some help on what it might mean, and there were several uh, definitions. The definition that I picked out here uh, is number three, as you'll see. A pragmatic attitude, attention to facts as opposed to opinions, ideals or emotions, realism. Now, the OED provides various citations of texts to help uh, to uh, explain where the language has come from, and my attention was particularly drawn to one citation from 1853, Brace's Home Life uh, Germany, uh, a strict and pragmatic people like the mass of the Scotch. So, um, I wondered whether the fact that there were two of us uh, with uh, Scottish roots uh, might have something to do with that, but uh, uh, it is an interesting reflection. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary uh, of Pragmatism is, as follows, a reasonable and logical way of doing things or of thinking about problems that is based on dealing with specific situations instead of... On ideas and theories. So was Paul pragmatic? Well, clearly, uh, the issue of uh, the the philosophical um, movement of pragmatism uh, is uh, after Paul's time. So we can't be thinking in that technical sense about Paul's pragmatism. And of course, we don't find Paul describing himself as being pragmatic. We don't find that language. So in a sense, we're working anachronistically, we're taking A modern concept, and we're applying it uh, to Paul's time, to his language. So we have to ask ourselves the question is it fair to describe Paul as pragmatic? Could we really say anything Paul did was not driven by his quote ideas from the Merriam-Webster dictionary, or better, by his theology? Perhaps it's better, I would suggest, to ask. To what extent is Paul prepared to be flexible in his approach, which is fully informed by his theology, in order to communicate effectively? In order to consider this, I want to just quickly look at a couple of confusing cases that we have to deal with in Scripture. And particularly, first of all, the confusing cases of Timothy and Titus. In Acts 16, we're introduced to Timothy, where Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra, uh, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish, and a believer, but whose father was Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area. For they all knew... That his father was a Greek, but then we read about Titus in Galatians chapter two, and verses three through to five, where Paul uh, continues his discussion, um, uh, reflections on his uh, his experience of dealing with the Jerusalem apostles, and in verse three he says, "Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek." this matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Why does Paul circumcise Timothy but refuse to circumcise Titus? Another puzzling case, and uh, this led uh, me to ask Robert to read from Philippians chapter 1, to preach or not to preach. That is not a general question. That is uh, in this specific uh, context. So Philippians 1, verse 15 uh, through to 18, we read uh, the, the context. Paul is in prison. He is uh, writing this letter to the Philippian church that has supported him, that is concerned for him. Their sent out missionary is now imprisoned uh, and apparently uh, restrained from doing what he was called to do. And uh, he says, I want you to know that what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. And then he speaks about uh, believers who have been uh, encouraged Uh, to preach but also to these people who he introduces in verse 15 it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry but others out of goodwill the latter do so out of love knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains but what does it matter The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. But then compare that with the very familiar passage from Galatians chapter 1, where Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. And then I'm going to skip on to verse 9. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. What's the difference? What's the difference in the situation with Timothy and Titus? What's the difference in the situation with these people who uh, are preaching uh, the gospel for selfish ambitions? And Paul says, what does it matter? The main thing is that Christ is preached. And then these people who have been troubling the Galatians, where he says, if anyone preaches to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be under God's curse. What's the difference? Well, it seems to me that the difference is that Paul is concerned that the truth of the gospel be preserved. So where the gospel is ringing out, even for false motives, and even in a situation where there is some cultural adaptation required, he is prepared uh, to make that uh, cultural adaptation. He is prepared to accept that preaching. But where the gospel is changed, corrupted, denied, then he is not prepared to move at all. I think that our topic of Paul's, uh, the limits of Paul's pragmatism also raises for us uh, another, uh, ter- another item of terminology uh, which is that of contextualisation. And that relates uh, especially uh, to missiology. You'll find that uh, discussed primarily by missiologists but it's by no means something that only missiologists uh, have to consider. In fact, contextualisation is simply the question of how We take account of and respond to contexts. And we are all in a context. We are all in one context or another, perhaps. As our week uh, passes by, we may be in several different contexts, even as we are in one uh, geographical location. Helpful book to consider, just to draw your attention to it, is this one by Dean Fleming, Contextualization in the New Testament, Patterns for Theology and Mission. And what marks uh, Fleming's book out is that it is um, a book that focuses on the texts of the New Testament, works through it, uh, works through these texts with particular uh, awareness of the uh, contributions of New Testament scholarship, but also... Uh, raises questions which are of significance for missiology, for the spread of the gospel. Contextualization addresses the fact that contexts change, but the gospel remains the same. Fleming comments as follows. uh, One quotation which uh, you have on your handout and one that you don't. Paul's quote, theology never stands on its own. Now, the reason that he puts theology in inverted commas there, as far as I can uh, see, is not that he doubts that Paul has a theology, but he uh, suggests that Paul does not have a kind of whole systematic theology uh, written down somewhere um, that is the uh, objective content of his um, beliefs. Rather, his theology is always contextualized. It's always addressed to specific situations. So Paul's theology never stands on its own, independent of his communications to real people within their real lives. Instead, we encounter theology in action. Paul's theological reflections on the gospel in light of the different pastoral situations he faced. And then another quotation Ultimately, it is the gospel that directs the process of Paul's theological reflection, not the audience or the issues he addresses. Paul's thought transcends the shifting tides of contingent circumstances precisely because it is anchored in the abiding truth of the gospel. So we have two issues to take account of, the issue of the gospel, what is Paul proclaiming and the contexts in which he proclaims that gospel. Another important uh, contribution to this discussion is an article that was published um, almost 30 years ago uh, by uh, D.A. Carson, Don Carson, uh, in the Churchman Journal. Unfortunately, for some reason, uh, presumably he was not so well known then, uh, when somebody saw the D.A., their minds slipped along and described him as David. Uh, So if you are puzzled when you find uh, David Carson at the head of the article, uh, then uh, you just read to the end and you find that he's the professor at uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and so it can be no other uh, than Don Carson. But uh, this article is available um, freely online in PDF format, and you can get it at biblicalstudies.org or uh, probably elsewhere now um, as usual uh, for professor carson it is a very thorough um, it is an extensive article pages six to forty five uh, so it is uh, no light read but uh, a very helpful uh, analysis that addresses particularly the first corinthians nine passage which we will spend some time on uh, but also uh, the acts um, context of the, the issues uh, surrounding uh, Paul's confrontation of Peter at Antioch. Carson comments uh, regarding one particular uh, text, 1 Corinthians 9 and 19-23 to 23, from which our um, phrase all things to all men comes uh, to make any contextual sense out of 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23 therefore one must suppose that Paul is willing to be accommodating on some points, but not on others. I want us to look at several uh, key texts. Uh, we may have to uh, limit our uh, scope by time, but let's see how we go. I've deliberately decided to uh, limit my attention to uh, primarily 1 Corinthians, and we'll look at uh, a number of texts from 1 Corinthians. But I also want to just pick out several other uh, letters we've already mentioned, Philippians and Galatians, as having some relevance for this topic, uh, and I'll pick out one or two other texts. But I also want us to have a look at uh, two passages from Acts, Acts 13, where Paul is presented uh, by Luke preaching to Jews, and Acts 17, where he is preaching to literate Greeks And just to see how Luke um, presents to us something of the uh, diversity of approaches that we find uh, Paul taking. So some words of Paul's uh, own and some from Luke which present Paul in action. First of all, I want to draw your attention to 1 Corinthians 1 and verses 18 to 25. Um, Now this passage is uh, significant. Uh, Gordon Fee in his uh, his very important and uh, very helpful commentary uh, describes it as a high point in Paul's theology and indeed of the whole Bible. Paul is addressing a church that is uh, racked by division and that is under grave pressure from those who would regard themselves as cultured to uh, conform to the standards of culture of the day, uh, to emphasise high-quality uh, speaking, uh, to emphasise uh, form, perhaps, over content. And Paul addresses uh, that head-on. We see in this particular passage that, first of all, he contrasts the word of the cross with rhetorical skill. And in uh, chapter 1 uh, of 1 Corinthians and verse 17. I'll just get that uh, open. 1 Corinthians 1 and uh, verse 17. In the ESV uh, it reads, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So we have here, um, I'm sorry, I'm realizing that I'm not... Keeping up. Apologies to you. I have to remember to change that too. Um, so in 1 Corinthians uh, set 1.17, Paul emphasizes that Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words and eloquence. Uh, this is the NIV. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So he's addressing a church where uh, the issue of Um, form and uh, speaking for the sake of speaking rather than speaking truth was uh, being um, prioritized. Yet, in what comes afterwards, Paul appears to employ considerable rhetorical skill. So, uh, we have Paul addressing a particular problem, but he doesn't address it by abandoning the, uh, the skills Uh, of the rhetor but he uses them for the sake of the gospel his priority is the word of the cross his priority is the message which must not be shaped by um, the itching ears of the hearers but he uses these skills uh, in a direct and effective way Gordon Fee comments quote after the manner of the prophet Isaiah Paul turns to rhetoric to advance his own position against the Corinthians. So we have a prime example in this uh, series of questions that he gives us. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And we may also uh, consider the way in which Paul shapes his, um, his message in the biting sarcasm that we find in 1 Corinthians 4, 8-12, where Paul appears to be making statements that affirm the um, Corinthians, but in fact, as we read on, we see that in fact he is challenging them. So let's turn uh, now to uh, this key passage that uh, raises the issue Sorry. Uh, to a uh, passage that, that, from which we get our uh, talk heading, our talk title. All things to all men. The passage is First Corinthians 9, um, but we have to consider that passage in the context of First Corinthians 8 to 10, uh, where Paul deals with food offered to idols. You're familiar, I'm sure, with the situation in Corinth where. Uh, In the latter part of Corinthians, Paul addresses a number of issues that the uh, Corinthians have raised with him. And he does so, uh, the the signal that he's doing so, is uh, the repeated use of a phrase, peride, now concerning, and we find that at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 8. Now, Paul, having initiated that discussion, immediately digresses to, uh, to consider the difference between knowledge and uh, love. So, 1 Corinthians 8, verses 1 to 3. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something he does not yet know as he ought to know but if anyone loves god he is known by god now you'll see in uh, the esv and also in the niv and in uh, several modern translations that we face a challenge with first corinthians because there are words which are included in the text which may be words which are actually um quotations of what the Corinthians have been claiming so you'll see uh, there in verse 8-1 now concerning uh, food offered to idols we know that quote all of us possess knowledge now there Paul seems to be quoting from the Corinthians and saying this is what you say you say we all possess knowledge and as we'll go on to see Uh, he regards that knowledge as being used inappropriately. But, he says, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Now, it seems to me that that potentially is a principle that we can use to help us to make sense of some of the issues that we may face when we are discussing uh, the relationship between principle and pragmatism. The issue that knowledge um, Puffs up, but love builds up. It seems to me that there Paul is saying we have to take love, which of course in it itself requires proper definition, into account in any decisions that we make regarding a course of action. So in this, uh, um, there's this digression, and it's similar in fact to the digression that you find in 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul again begins to talk about spiritual gifts, but almost immediately uh, digresses to deal with some theological principles before coming back to the subject. As he returns to the subject of food offered to idols, it's clear that Paul has a very uh, precise theological understanding of spiritual realities. Uh, In this famous passage, Uh, We find, uh, especially in verse 6, that Paul takes the confession of the Jewish people, that there is one God, and he uh, reshapes it so that the language of the Shema uh, from Hebrews 6 incorporates into two parallel structures the person of Jesus Christ. So uh, Paul says we know that an idol has no existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So Paul uh, sides with the Corinthians who say, we know that there's no such thing as other gods. Paul addresses that and he says, yes, I agree with you. You're factually correct. But he doesn't take the side of the Corinthians on how they are to act according to that knowledge. Verse 7, in verse 7 and 8, Paul recognises that not all share this perspective. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. He then goes on in verses 9 to 14 to urge that care for Christian brothers and sisters be placed above rights. So the Corinthians would claim that they have the right to eat food Paul says, even if the factual basis on which you are arguing is correct, the love and care that you are um, obligated to show to your Christian brothers and sisters uh, relativizes that right. Paul finishes um, by saying in verse 13, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. But Paul does not regard himself uh, as any less for having uh, taken that decision. And in the next section of chapter 9, Paul rejects criticism for not maintaining his rights. And it's in that context that we come to chapter 9, verses 19 to 23. But then the discussion continues, uh, where Paul, uh, at the end of Chapter 9 and into chapter 10 emphasizes the need to be disciplined, uh, reflecting on the account of the Israelites in the wilderness. And then Paul, at the end of chapter 10, returns to the issue of food offered to idols. And in that discussion, uh, he does two things. First of all, he says that uh, love, again, must be given priority over rights. And then that all acts should be done for the glory of God and for the salvation of others. So as we come to uh, chapter 9, verses 19 to 23 specifically, let's just uh, look at it briefly. Uh, It reads, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. in its blessings now what you can see in that passage is a repeated use of the greek term hina which generally indicates purpose so paul is extremely purposeful in this passage he uh, has almost a poetic structure a very uh, st- steady pattern which uh, follows right the way through saying i became uh, like such and such in order In order that I might win such and such. And he goes through a variety of different uh, categories of people. To the Jews. uh, To uh, those under the law. To those outside the law. To the weak. And then finally he uh, has a summary. uh, That I have become all things to all men. That I might save. Some, So moving from the verb to win to the verb to save. And so Paul appears to demonstrate what Carson calls accommodation. He uh, chooses to act in a way that enables the gospel to be communicated effectively. But Carson uh, has this helpful qualification, uh, which I haven't put on your handout, I don't think. But here is the, the quotation. Paul's flexibility has limits. Quote, Paul's principle of accommodation, as expressed in 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23, is not a license for unlimited flexibility. For him, distinctively Christian demands, and whatever it means to be a nomos Christu, subject to the law of Christ, are non-negotiable. From this specifically Christian base, Paul feels free to adopt either Jewish or Gentile perspectives, with a view to winning as many people to Christ as possible. Paul's example of voluntary servanthood has an immediate bearing on the contextual discussion of the weaker brother, along with a universal application to all Christians, and not just to the apostolate. I want also to uh, consider briefly uh, 1 Corinthians 15. So uh, as we've uh, gone through 1 Corinthians just uh, very quickly. We've seen Paul's emphasis on the theology of the cross, the word of the cross. Uh, we have seen his uh, willingness to adapt, not giving up the word of the cross, but to uh, adapt in ways that will allow that message to be communicated. Let me keep up. Uh, and he. Um, Now comes to discuss the gospel. Now, we've already seen and we've mentioned the language of the gospel. And one of the challenges we face when we uh, discuss the gospel is that Paul rarely defines the gospel. So, when we say, well, the gospel must remain uh, steady, must remain sure, uh, regardless of the context, the question then arises, well, what is the gospel? Now, Paul frequently mentions the gospel without uh, defining it but there is one passage uh, that in particular provides effectively a definition of the gospel and that is 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15 and we'll look just at a little bit of that chapter 15 verse 1 Paul says now I would remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received. And then we find this very carefully structured passage, which again isn't so clear um, perhaps when you're reading it just as uh, flowing lines of text, but it's uh, a very carefully structured section. What did Paul receive and what did he pass on? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas then to the twelve. Now that structure indicates that the gospel was a recognisable body of information that could be transmitted, the language that's used in that text, is the language of transmission, what I received, what I passed on. And that pattern suggests that it was presented in a way that very easily could be memorised, passed on and received. Now that gospel that Paul describes is the gospel which he says in verse 2 is the gospel that saves if you hold fast. So when we're thinking about the limits of Paul's pragmatism, what we find is that Paul is prepared to shape his practice in a way that will enable the gospel to be communicated, but he is not prepared to modify his gospel in an order that it will be better received. And in 1 Corinthians he is able both to change his form of presentation using the skills of uh, rhetoric he is able uh, to declare quite openly that he will be flexible in ensuring that as many as possible are one to christ but in the same letter he is absolutely convinced that the gospel the gospel that had been delivered to him that he had passed on to the corinthians must be held intact but having said that it's interesting to note that there are different facets of the Gospel. Now here I'm suggesting that we might think of the Gospel as a single jewel which has various uh, facets, various approaches. So for instance, in the passage we've just read, the Gospel is presented as the historical events, largely those that are uh, recounted in the canonical Gospels. But if we think of a passage like Romans chapter 3 verses 21 to 26, which is not, uh, I agree, uh, described itself as the gospel, but in that passage we seem to have what many regard as the heart of the gospel that is proclaimed, that uh, the just God deals justly and graciously with sinners and their sin. But then in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 13 to 14, Uh, we find Paul having spoken at the beginning of Colossians 1 about uh, the gospel which is bearing fruit, he then in this brief uh, section of text speaks about how God has rescued the Colossians from uh, the dominion of darkness and uh, transferred them into the kingdom of the Son that he loves. Now in each of these cases we find an aspect of the gospel presented without the full explanation of all the other aspects of the gospel, which suggests that Paul regards the preaching of the gospel as non-negotiable, but nonetheless the gospel is bigger than any one presentation of it may be in a particular case. So he shapes the needs of his presentation of the gospel to emphasize the particular issue that his hearers, in their particular circumstances, need to hear. Each of these passages presents something true about the Gospel, but Paul does not say everything on each occasion and in each context. Now, just briefly, two uh, texts from Acts which are um, worth considering in terms of how they present Paul as a preacher, The first is um, Acts 13 and verses 13 to 52. So you may want to uh, follow it. We'll just deal with it very briefly. Acts 13 and verses 13 to 52. We're told uh, in verse 13, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. So we're told that uh, Paul went to the synagogue. And it's in the context of the synagogue that he is invited to preach this sermon. What do we notice about this sermon? Well, first of all, Paul's sermon draws on the story of Israel, and you can see that. We'll not have time to go through it in detail, but you can see it in verses 17 to 23. I've just uh, picked out um, some of the text here. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness, He overthrew seven nations in Canaan. All of this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king, and so on, until he um, says, from this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the saviour Jesus, as he promised. Now that's a pretty full um, historical narrative of uh, the story of Israel. It's pretty inclusive. Secondly, Paul's sermon highlights common ancestry. We see this in the way that Paul addresses the people, according to Acts 13. Verse 16, fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God. So, in the latter case, you've got God-fearers. Uh, associated with the synagogue, but uh, first of all, fellow Israelites. Then, verse 26, fellow children of Abraham and you God fearing Gentiles. So he is inclusive, but he is um, making himself of one people with those he, who are listening. And then, verse 32, we tell you the good news what God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us. And then just to emphasize the point, their children, by raising up Jesus. And then finally, we find that Paul's sermon quotes scripture as authoritative. You can see this on a number of occasions, verses 32 to 35, verse 41, verse 47, where uh, he says, for example, in verse 35, so it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your Holy One see decay. Quoting from Um, Psalm 16 compare that with Acts 17 verses 16 to 34 where Paul is preaching to Gentiles now here I've picked out uh, four points first of all Paul's sermon begins with a point of common awareness oh thank you very much too much technology Paul's sermon begins with a point of common awareness, but not shared identity. So uh, Paul uh, has been wandering around Athens. He sees all the temples. Uh, Verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. And he says, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown god, So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. Common awareness, but not shared identity. Secondly, Paul's sermon follows the biblical account of creation, but without reference to scripture. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands, and so on. But no scripture. The story is there, but no scripture. Thirdly, Paul's sermon draws on texts, but texts which were familiar to his hearers rather than scripture. And so you are well familiar, I'm sure, with uh, verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. Epimenides, uh, Paul doesn't say that, but uh, that's the reference. And as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring from Aratus. So texts, yes, but texts that the Athenians are familiar with. But finally, Paul's sermon comes to a Christological focus. And here we see that Paul has no intentions of uh, changing the gospel or of losing sight of the gospel. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Interestingly, uh, one of the core elements of the uh, 1 Corinthians 15 passage is uh, what he draws upon to make his final application. This lengthy quote um, comes from uh, a major work on mission by Eckhart Schnabel, As you can see from the page numbers, you need some dedication uh, to to read this book, but it's a remarkable resource uh, for understanding uh, the biblical evidence and the early Christian evidence for Christian mission. I think this sums up nicely what uh, I believe we have seen from the various texts, uh, that Paul has a particular attitude towards the people, but also a particular commitment towards the Gospel. Let me read it to you. The basic rule of missionary work is, for Paul, the consistent commitment to the listener, whom he takes very seriously. Jews need to be reached with the Gospel as Jews, and likewise Gentiles as Gentiles. The one decisive factor is that people are one for faith in Jesus Christ, our passage from 1 Corinthians 9, 19. This basic rule controls Paul's behavior. He can live as a Jew among Jews, and he can live like a Gentile among Gentiles. 1 Corinthians 9.20 Paul's behavior reflects his conviction that all people need to hear the gospel. However, the behavior of Paul the missionary is controlled not by the circumstances in which he preaches and teaches, but by the gospel and the necessity to proclaim it. He is willing to, quote, become all things to all people, 1 Corinthians 9.22, with the integrity of the gospel as the controlling criterion for any accommodation, 1 Corinthians 9.23. Paul is never content with existing missionary, quote, successes, nor does he give up when only a few people are converted. He constantly strives to reach more people with the message of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 9.19, Romans 10.18. And he never gives up hope that more Gentiles and more Jews, Romans 10.16, will come to faith in Jesus Christ. This, it seems to me, is what we see when we uh, reflect on these passages from Paul's letters and the presentations of Paul's actions that we find in Acts. Just a few concluding reflections on application. Firstly, the gospel must remain the same. But the expression of the gospel must make sense in context. Whenever we are communicating with a particular group, we must use language that they can understand. We must use language that they can uh, comprehend. And that either means that we use language that they are familiar with. I might have mentioned uh, the language that Paul seems to use in Colossians, where he appears to pick up some language that the um, Colossians may have been hearing from the mystery religions. Uh, Things like, for instance, fullness, pleroma, um, or musterion, mystery. And he invests these words with full biblical gospel meaning. So we must ensure that the gospel remains the same But it must make sense in context. Secondly, love expressed in the desire to see people respond to the gospel is a valid priority. It seems clear from 1 Corinthians 8, uh, the first few verses, that it's Paul's priority. And practice may be shaped by what will make communication more effective if the gospel is not altered. And finally, That the gospel is like a jewel with many facets and different aspects may have more impact in different contexts. I think from our own experience of working in South Africa about how uh, traditional African religion emphasized the role of the ancestor and uh, the the ancestors were a constant uh, matter of concern to many people, even some of the people who became uh, Christians. Because there was this sense that the ancestor might cause great hardship for a family if they are neglected. If they are not appeased by the appropriate sacrifices, then perhaps they will cause uh, harm to children. They will cause um, difficulties of one kind or another. In that context, the message of uh, Colossians 2, that Christ has disarmed the powers, is of Great significance. Whereas perhaps to uh, folks working in the city, in London, that may not be a primary issue of concern. But it's still a part of the Gospel. So if in an African context you emphasize that, you're not changing the Gospel so long as the other aspects of the Gospel also receive due attention in their time but you are shaping your presentation so that it has the clearest application, the clearest Im- impact. And so, as we continue to discuss uh, the limits of Paul's pragmatism, I hope we will uh, be able to find ways in which we can take Paul's uh, commitment to the gospel, his clarity of thought, and also his deep desire that he might win people from all uh, sections of society and that we will be able to apply that in our time and in our context thank you